Good Risings. I'm Jackie. And I'm Brian. And this is Grateful Grains. Welcome back. You may recall we're having a little bit of fun as we spend the next three weeks taking a look at some darker topics. We're getting it started this week with awful history. Monday, it was Tuskegee. Tuesday, we explored the Panama Canal. Wednesday, it was the Spanish Inquisition. Yesterday, it was bananas. And we're wrapping it up today with the witch hunts. Last Wednesday, we explored the logical fallacy that begat witch hunts called the burden of proof fallacy. Today, we're taking a look at the history itself. Dr. Brian Pavlak is an accomplished author, professor of history at King's College, and ordained priest in the Episcopal Church. He shares in the German town of Nordlingen in 1593, an innkeeper named Maria Hull found herself accused of witchcraft. She was arrested for questioning and denied the charges. She continued to insist she wasn't a witch through 62 rounds of torture before her accusers finally released her. Rebecca Lemp, accused a few years earlier in the same town, faced a worse fate. She wrote to her husband from jail, worrying that she would confess under torture, even though she was innocent. After giving a false confession, she was burned at the stake in front of her family. Hole and Lemp were both victims of the witch hunts that occurred in Europe and the American colonies from the late 15th century until the early 18th century. These witch hunts were not a unified initiative by a single authority, but rather a phenomenon that occurred sporadically and followed a similar pattern each time. The term witch has taken on many meanings, but in these hunts, a witch was someone who allegedly gained magical powers by obeying Satan rather than God. Dr. Pavlak explains, this definition of witchcraft spread through churches in Western Europe starting at the end of the 15th century. It really gained traction after the Pope gave a friar and professor of theology named Heinrich Kramer permission to conduct inquisitions in search of witches in 1485. His first in the town of Innsbruck didn't gain much traction with the local authorities, who disapproved of his harsh questioning of respectable citizens and shut down his trials. Undeterred, he wrote a book called Malus Maleficarum, or Hammer of Witches. The text argued for the existence of witches and suggested ruthless tactics for hunting and prosecuting them. He singled out women as easier targets for the devil's influence, though men could also be witches. Kramer's book spurred others to write their own books and give sermons on dangers of witchcraft. Dr. Pavlik explains that according to these texts, witches practice rituals to poison or bewitch targets that the devil singled out for harm. Though there was no evidence to support any of these claims, belief in witches became widespread. A witch hunt often began with a misfortune a failed harvest, a sick cow, or a stillborn child. Community members blamed witchcraft and accused each other of being witches. Many of the accused were people on the fringes of society, the elderly, the poor, or social outcasts, but any member of the community could be targeted, even occasionally children. While religious authorities encouraged witch hunts, local secular governments usually carried out the detainment and the punishment of accused witches. Those suspected of witchcraft were questioned and often tortured, and under torture, thousands of innocent people confessed to witchcraft and implicated others in turn. Because these witch hunts occurred sporadically over centuries in continents, the specifics varied considerably. 
Dr. Pavlak shares that punishments for convicted witches range from small fines to burning at the stake. The hunt in which Hold and Lemp were accused dragged on for nine years, while others lasted just months. They could have anywhere from a few to a few hundred victims. The motivations of the witch hunters probably varied as well, but it seems likely that many weren't consciously looking for scapegoats. Instead, they sincerely believed in witchcraft and thought they were doing good by rooting it out in their communities. Institutions of power enabled real harm to be done on the basis of these beliefs. Dr. Pavlak brings to attention that there were dissenters all along, jurists, scholars, and physicians countered books like Kramer's Hammer of Witches with texts objecting to the cruelty of the hunts, the use of forced confessions, and the lack of evidence of witchcraft. From the late 17th through the mid-18th century, their arguments gained force with the rise of stronger central governments and legal norms like due process. Witch hunting slowly declined until it disappeared altogether. But the onset and the demise of those atrocities came gradually, out of seemingly ordinary circumstances. The potential for similar situations, in which authorities use their power to mobilize society against a false threat, still exists today. But so does the capacity of reasoned dissent to combat those false beliefs. There are innumerable moments from world history where the very worst of human nature has reared its ugly head. Things which were perfectly acceptable even 30 years ago are widely accepted as deplorable now. The further back we go, the worse it gets. For most of us, our quality of life has improved, at least on some level. But having an eye on history can serve us in a great many ways. Our history doesn't leave us. It's what led us here. And when you've got a thorough enough grasp on what's come before, it's impossible to miss the fact that history, more often than not, repeats itself. Thanks so much for joining us on Grateful Grains. You can find us on Instagram at Good Risings, or you can find me at B McMuffin. And you can find me at Jacqueline M. Wood underscore one. See you again Monday. Until then, remember, a better tomorrow starts with today. Good Risings is presented by Cavalry Audio. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.